one thing that stands out for me is in a coach training, there was an older Dutch reform minister. So that's in South African context and Afrikaans from what was the institutionalized church during apartheid. Yeah. And a young Indian man, they happened to be on the same coach training together and were paired up to do intermodule coaching. And this woman, said to me, this has been the most profound learning and transformational moment in my life, working with this young Indian man, even more than all my theological training over the years at college, all my work. It's that sort of little nugget of a moment that goes, look what's enabled by working across cultures virtually. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by John Fleming and myself, Matt Taylor. In this episode, we speak with Karen Pratt, who is a teaching and supervising transactional analyst in the education field. Karen is also a trainer of coaches, a facilitator and an author. In this episode, she shares with us her experience of using TA with particular focus on working with various cultures. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us on Three People in Your Head. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, your roles, responsibilities, TA involvement, that kind of thing. Thank you for the opportunity for the conversation. I first met TA 20 years ago when I did my 101. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, (laughs) What an amazing journey. Where I am now is I'm a TSDA in education. I'm actively running various levels of um, TA training groups. I've worked virtually for about four years. So it's a richness of diversity with people, particularly in India, other places in Africa, South Africa. I'm born and bred, live still in Cape Town in South Africa. My other professional roles are as um, a coach, a coach supervisor, I'm one of the team of an international coach training company and a professional practice of using TA with groups as well. So at the heart of it, it's about learning and development, really, and supporting other people to do that. I really feel the urge now to not travel around, even locally in my country, to work on the ground, as it were, that I was doing maybe six years ago, but almost that leaving a legacy to be supervising, supporting others who are doing doing the work. Great. Um, that's an overview of, of the sort of work I'm involved in. Tell us about your journey then into TA from 20 years ago, you'd describe it. So how did that happen? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey from being a medical microbiologist, uh, yeah. not really interested in people, but working with specimens to yeah. <laughs> get married, have children want something more flexible to do, so trained in holistic healing work and out of the reflexology practice, particularly working with women with infertility, I became interested in psychology. And it was one of those out of the blue, hadn't heard of TA, suddenly it kept popping into my face and I thought, what is this about? Let me explore. And one of my friends knew a TA trainer, Colin Brett, and he was coming to South Africa to do a TA-101, and um, I went ahead and did it, and it, the journey emerged slowly from from that point. Yeah, but you were hooked after the TA-101. I think I started with a, um, when I heard how many hours one had to do to do the CTA, my script belief 
fiction and said, oh, people like me can't do that. But I ah. just knew that I wanted to learn more for me. And yeah. probably two years into it, I thought, you know what? People like me are going to do this. Um, yeah. It was just the affirmation, uh, learning about who I am, the meaning I could make of myself differently from how I'd done growing up, just gave me that confidence. And I think it was another person seeing potential and believing in me that really made me go, I can do it. And I did it in 2008. I did my CTA in Johannesburg at a world conference, which there were many tears because it felt quite profound. I was the first TA um, educator in South Africa, probably wow. in Africa. And doing it in my home home country felt very important and meaningful. Wow. Almost like you timed it perfectly. Mm. And so tell us a little bit more about your area of expertise, how you work with TA in your field. I think it's a lot around how I am with the people I work with rather than what I teach them. And that's what I see emerging in my TA training group as well with educators. It doesn't really matter which model of ego state you use. It's more important for the quality of connection with the people I work with. So I'm thinking both of my clients and my trainees. Um, I really quite favor the, the, the radical style of learning. And that learning is transformational. It's not just here's some knowledge, it's going to be good for you. And I think that particularly grows out of my history as a white South African, where in the apartheid days, you know, one group decided what would happen to the other group. And yeah. I think we still have got a lot of journeying to do towards reconciliation. And that respectfulness of co-creating, what do you want to learn about you in the situation? And then um, in a professional role, I would pick bits of TA that I thought would help people to learn what they wanted to learn. So there's really commitment and buy-in and ownership. That for me feels really important. And often it's to let people make what sense they want to make of a TA framework. It's not right, right or wrong. If it's relevant for them, go for it, <laughs> particularly in, in maybe community work, um, smaller organizations. Mm. Uh, there's not a right way to interpret a, a framework. And so you're an expert in the educational field, and you mentioned this term radical in education. Can you explain a little bit more about that? I'm using the term from Trudy Newton's Learning Imagos, yeah. um, and Giles Barrow has also added his aspect to that of three philosophical approaches to learning are more about schooling, and three are more about learning in the true sense. And for me, yeah. the radical imago is all about mutuality and learning together. The actual imago shows the educator as an equal blob in, in the circle. Right. Um, and it's we change together. I'm changed by you. You are changed by me. And I think when, when that happens, people really own the changes. Certainly, I don't stay in that imago all the time. There's some progressive is another imago where there is some information. I act as a guide. There is some input. There's a humanistic flavor of being concerned with individual people. Yeah. And um, certainly in TA exam groups, the technological approach is, hey, their competencies here, we've got to match the competencies. So it depends on the contract of learning. Yeah. But transformational learning 
in particularly community organizations, um, even teams in small companies where people come, particularly in South Africa, from diverse backgrounds. The key thing is not to learn a technical skill. It's to learn how to be with each other in a more respectful way. And I think TA models speak so beautifully to that, but not imposed, but in response to what the expressed need is from the group. Right. So it's very different from the kind of schooling type education where yeah. this is what you need to learn. Exactly. And I'm yeah. going to test you. Yeah. I think as well yeah. that um, it's important to draw that distinction because often when people talk about educational TA, I think their head goes to schooling or yeah. to exactly. higher education or university, you know, mm. because, uh, and that might be a cultural thing as well. So I can only really speak for Ireland, but definitely here, the minute you mention the word education, it's like, oh, school or university. And really what I'm hearing you say, Karen, is that you tend to work at the other end of this continuum that you've mentioned, which is around the radical progressive. And that really isn't about schooling. It's more about what you, I think you said earlier, is learning and development or transformational learning. And what, exactly. what settings is that taking place in then? Because I think people find it easy to understand, well, schooling happens in a building that's deemed mm. a school or a university. So sometimes they find it harder to grasp where does this other type of education, because it seems almost mystical. So where does it take place? <laughs> yeah. mm, what a lovely question. Um, so some of the work I've done over the years, um, for quite a few years, I worked with an NGO called the Wellness Foundation, and we would travel out to beautiful places in, in rural areas, working with community care workers, meeting with them for three days, a residential uh, program, uh, four times a year and incrementally building on a few TA models to give them a sense of understanding themselves, a few body care techniques. And that was cross-culturally, uh, often in a language that um, I worked with a cross-cultural co-facilitator and we, it, she would translate for me. Another place, for example, would be in um, university departments. So I worked for a finance department in the university who were also a very multicultural team with lots of challenges with students having lots of needs. And there was a little bit of conflict between the cultures in their understanding and their histories. And TA could almost externalize what wasn't working for them, help them understand it. And then they had options to create a way of connecting and conversing that was much more productive and respectful of each other. Um, right. And individually in coaching as well, I think is where I see coaching as learning people wanting to become the best version of themselves to develop. It's often when people's situation has changed, they're in a new role at work, and they're feeling a little bit insecure. So all that I see as present-centered, moving into the future, learning. Mm. So what is it about TA that you think facilitates this kind of learning you know, it's interesting when people have done a 101 with me, inevitably there's one person in the group at the end says, this isn't rocket science. I know I've known all the stuff all along. And I think that's, <laughs> that's the key. It's basic common sense. People get it so easily because it's so relevant to their lived experience. But now it gives them a way of externalizing what's going on and putting it in a framework and being curious about, ah, oh, now I can see what's going on. What's, that's the first step. And then they've got options. 
to start doing it differently. And the I think the visual uh, diagrams is also a benefit. I've I've taught TA outdoors drawing circles in the sand when we haven't got a shared language, and people do egos uh, do role plays in their in their own language. I don't have to understand it. I can pick up the energy, and they can talk about it and learn. So for me, it's very translatable into different cultures, different languages, and it's yeah. that basic humanness of people that people get. Yeah, great. And what do you think in terms of TA and its relevance today and the kind of current climate, the you know middle of the lockdown, we've got all the discussion about Black Lives Matter and racial tension. What is it about TA that makes it relevant, applicable to today? That's quite a... It's a big question. <laughs> question. Yeah. yeah. I think it gives us a way of um, understanding our intrapsychic processes. I'm thinking of me as with my white privilege. I think, you know, I've internalized that. Um, the black people in my context in South Africa have internalized the oppression. So there's a bit of a framework for understanding that. Yeah. Um, and then I think it also translates to very practical ways of being with each other differently. Um, that adds a usefulness. Yeah. It's not just complex psychobabble stuff. It really can speak quite powerfully, I think, and yeah. make a difference in, in people's lives. Yeah. You've mentioned that a couple of times, this sense of being with each other. How do you incorporate that into your educational training programs? Hmm. You know, that's really interesting um, because it's, it's, it's a quality, it's quite ethereal. It's not a, okay, now I'm going to turn on my beingness. Especially in my um, educational TA groups, I would hope to always model that with trainees, being flexible, being authentic, being open in the moment, being appropriately vulnerable about not knowing something, inviting the rest of the group. I think those are all maybe flavors of beingness. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite nebulous sometimes. You know, I, I was working in a group of managers and the one guy said to me, you've said nothing, but it's profound. And I was quite taken aback. And then I realized what I was doing when he was thinking through a model that we just used. I heard him, I reflected back what I heard, and maybe asked him a question to help him think deeper. And right. this was his way of saying, that's weird. I'm used to being told what to do and think. So almost, I don't know, a more of a stillness, a patience, a hands-off almost, trusting the yeah. person will make their own sense of it. I think for me, those are all qualities of beingness. And because it's a quality, it's hard to sometimes grab it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's all about deepening self-awareness, really. And practices. Um, I have a practice of centering prayer that I've been immersed in for many years. I would encourage people to have practices of mindfulness, reflection. Before the lockdown, I was very involved in singing in early classical music and Baroque music. And that for me was a beautiful practice of presence, totally in the moment, making music with other people, which helps me then when I'm training to also take some of that quality into the, into the moment. Mm. 
I think it's that encounter, the, the quality of the encounter often invites more change than even the TA model, quite honestly. Mm. It's like, I see you, I get you. Yeah. You know, even though we might be very different, I'm taking the time to really try and get you, as it were. Yeah. Very important today. Uh, you say you've been working online for four years. Where a lot of us have only really been working online for the past couple of months, having been forced to because of the, the COVID lockdown. What would you say are the challenges about this sense of being and attunement with one another working through the virtual world, the Zoom world that we're now in? I think it's um, depth of contracting is important, particularly on the psychological level. So mm. maybe when we're in a room, we pick up different cues more, more easily. Although I think that's a contaminated belief, I think on the screen, actually, using a platform where everyone sees everyone equally, when there's lots of small group breakout rooms, there can be that deep quality of of connection. In our training groups, we've picked up, there's been um, a storm, inevitably, and somebody said, I wonder what's going on here, and we said, let's talk about it. It happens. People have been tearful. We've held the space silently. We've just contracted really, really thoroughly about how do we be with each other on a screen? What do we need from each other? You know, something as simple as some people use a virtual background and realizing that that creates such a sense of disconnect mm. and almost two-dimensionality. It doesn't really work. We'd rather see your raggedy bookshelves behind you, as it were. <laughs> and there's something also about people being situated in their context that adds a richness to the training. Mm. Um, there was somebody in India who'd gone home to her family home in a different province because there was a death. And it was really important for her to take her screen and show us her home yeah. to situate her in a place that was really important for her. I'm thinking of Giles Barrow's work now on eco-TA and place. And yeah. In a weird way, that's also possible on a screen. Yeah. We were having a chat with him, and this is with, the, I guess, the COVID panel discussion we had, and that sense that the coronavirus interrupted the Eco-TA program, which meant that everybody had to be in their place, which is what the course was all about, which I thought was a fantastic insight. One of the things that I've picked up with my clients that I work with is when I'm normally talking to somebody or when they're speaking, I may not give them as much eye contact or give them as much attention, but because I have this sense of presence in the room and I find myself being more attentive in many ways, especially to the information that I can get from the screen, possibly better quality listening from that. And I mean, I can anticipate someone about to speak just by that slight body movement of their hand to unmute and I'll call them by name. So I very consciously keep calling them by names. I, I never work in a huge group. So... Yeah. Training groups, maybe 12 maximum, and interaction, encouraging interaction all the time, discussion, which I think even more keeps a sense of connection and everyone is stroked for being there, their contributions. Yeah. Um, very important. And so because you've been working online for longer than most of us, have you got any tips that you would give in terms of creating a great experience for your team or your group that you're working with? How do you manage that dynamic? I think one of the tips is a kind of less is more in terms of slides. So I would never show more than maybe four slides and I create quite sort of 
quirky slides that try to mimic a, a good old flip chart and, and, and markers. Okay. Um, so a few slides and then stop sharing my screen to get plenary discussion, lots of interactive exercises in small rooms. I'm learning now that there are other apps that can uh, link with Zoom where something called Mentimeter where you can pose a question and people can type in something to create a word cloud. So that's beautiful to do maybe a group contract. I've recently found that I can link my iPad and share that screen with a drawing app because the Zoom drawing is quite a an art to use their symbols. So I actually yeah. draw freehand on my iPad if I want to create something spontaneously in the moment. Great. Um, yeah, those are, and keep the connection. Invite participation often. Yeah. Uh, check out how we're doing. Yeah. If the group's gone silent, just talk about it. Don't make assumptions. Check right. out assumptions. Then yeah. we know where we stand. Yeah. I did a half an hour presentation for part of my training and the silence I found because there was lots of slides. And so I, I found the silence was so unusual and somewhat unsettling. I found it quite challenging initially. So those bits of input, that's very useful. So tell us a little bit more about your favorite theories within TA. What are the areas of theory that have influenced your work the most? Hmm. Certainly, the approach of educational TA, and particularly I'm thinking of, of Trudy Newton's health system, yeah. has really impacted me. And I guess almost I'm, I'm fortunate in that I know some educators started their life in a psychotherapy group and maybe were quite grounded in let's analyze the problem. I kind of started with a clean slate, as it were, and just jumped straight into that. And I particularly find powerful an adaptation of Temple's functional fluency that a colleague and I, from our work with the community carers did, written up as the OKOK communication model, where we made the positive and negative of the parent and child created within a a box called the OKOK box. And when I'm working in the flesh with people, I will take my hula hoops and actually stand on the floor, (laughs) one foot in the center hula hoop, and talk about our responsiveness is to dip one toe into the positive, spontaneous child or cooperative child or the nurturing parent or the structuring parent, but keeping one foot in the adult. So for me, that's a metaphor of staying connected in the here and now, almost in my integrating adults, and I know I'm mixing structure and function, but choosing the flavor of each millisecond of interaction But if I were to step out of the box into one of the negative modes, I can't have a wide enough stride, which metaphorically says I've lost touch with current reality. I'm into that negative critical parent, over-nurturing parent, et cetera. And that's more reaction and past stuff than present-centered work. And people really, really enjoy that because it gives them a – I've still got a a function to do in my role, like being a manager in charge, but I can do it just in the line respectfully and firm rather than just out of the line with a somebody's not okay around here attitude. Yeah, right. Sounds very positive. In fact, one of the things that I'm picking up is when you described your TA 101 as well and the work that you do is very centered around finding people's strengths or nurturing and encouraging them for what they can do. 
is that something that is conscious in your work or is that something more about who you are as a person? That's an interesting question. It's probably a little bit of both, but it's, yeah. it's very conscious in my work. I've also trained and trained for a while in appreciative inquiry. Ah. And something from that that really resonates with me, AI talks about the positive core, that part of a human being where they are most alive and in touch with their values. And I'm always almost instinctively now listening for when do people come alive, even if they're feeling a little bit stuck? Yeah. When do their eyes light up? Where is that energy come alive? And then explore that a bit more. I hear you getting excited there. Tell me more about that. Right. You know, what happens to you when you tap into that? How does that align with your purpose? And, and what values come alive for you when you tap into that? So there's something about starting from that place, even if people don't find it very often, but when they do, it reminds them. And it, it's not just an intellectual thing. I think it seeps into the, the body, the, yeah. the soul. And when people are in touch with that, they inspire themselves, as it were. Right. And it can also be translated maybe to a current situation that is new and maybe a bit challenging to them. And it's there already. I think that takes me to the kind of non-duality approach as well, that everyone is already whole in TA terms, okay. Yeah. But in a very, very deep way, there's nothing to move towards. It's already there. But people have forgotten that. So if they get in touch with that again, it's really like the, the fuel to, to kind of fan the flames of their, their growth and development. Right. So your position always starts from there's strengths in there. And you said positive yeah. inquiry. That's about asking the questions to try and find those pieces of information. Yeah. Appreciative inquiry says what you ask questions about will grow. And yeah. if you ask people what goes well, more of that will happen. Yeah. If you ask them about the problem, more of that will happen. It's the stroke theory about what you stroke will, will develop. So mm. rather give people positive strokes than negative strokes. Because uh, right. you're going to get more of that positive behavior that you're stroking. Yeah. Karen, I'm intrigued now about TA psychotherapy. And I'm wondering, do you ever encounter boundaries where you feel like actually it would be more appropriate in this situation now where somebody actually did some therapeutic work? Or do you have the belief that actually most things can be dealt with through this approach? Because, yeah, I, I suppose I have my own thoughts on that. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm always sitting on the fence of, is it an and or or, or is there a place for both or, you know, and not wanting mm -hmm. to get into an argument about it. But I, I mean, I'm interested to know what you think. And do you refer people for therapy if you feel like you've hit against something that actually is more appropriate for, for that approach? I think that's a really important question and there is an ethical boundary between education and therapy and yes, I would refer people. I think what gives me a clue is there's enough adult cassettes yeah. in the person I'm working with or the group I'm working with. I think people can think about the past in the present and start to make new meaning with new permissions. And certainly in coaching, transformational coaching isn't just getting people to do new actions. It's who are you within your world that you want to be different in? And what beliefs might not be serving you well and what new meaning can you make? But there's certainly, for some people, there's um, trauma and unresolved issues from much earlier on that they do need to deal with. 
And I would mm. certainly uh, flag up that this would be more useful for you to do some work actually exploring the past. Yeah. And I can you- tell if people get an insight in coaching and two weeks later, the same theme comes up and we think about it in the present and they go, aha. And two weeks later, they're back in the same place. My sense is actually there's deeper work that needs to be done. Right. I would, I would refer. Yeah, because the thought is that if there was enough adults connected, the first time the shift would have would have happened or begun to to happen. Yeah, indeed. Now you you mentioned a phrase there. This is a question for the public: cathexis. What did you mean by that? Okay. So this is uh, the TA way of speaking about where our, if you like, psychic energy is held in yeah. the parent, in the adult, in the child. So cathexis is where where people are fully present in their adult ego state, in the here and now, that they can really stay present and engaged in the the moment without regressing to literally experience an earlier sense of themselves in their child or be really impacted by those interjected, outdated parent voices in their heads, if you like to, to use ordinary speak. Yeah, and that's what you're working with as a coach and educator. As a coach and an educator. Great. Yeah. So why is it, do you think, that TA isn't better known, being the Mm -hmm. fact that it's such a wonderful, rich, complex model that can explain so much? Or maybe they do where you are. Um, I still meet people who, when they ask me what I do, they say, oh, that I'm okay, you're okay, PAC stuff from the 60s. (laughs) So I think... Almost our history of TA and, and Burns very reason to rebel and make it easily accessible sometimes works as a disadvantage because people don't realize how valuable it is. So they haven't updated their scripts. I think in some countries, TA is, is much more mainstream in um, universities. Uh-huh. And that's really, really useful. But in countries, South Africa, it's not really known mainstream that well. So people then tend to see psychological approaches in a hierarchy and those that are academic in universities are good and this other stuff is just, you know, hearsay and pop psychology. Right. But it's when people really experience it in a little way that they start asking for it and they realize, actually, it's so much more user-friendly particularly in development areas. Yeah. So what do you think the myths are about TA that may be influencing the fact that it's not so widely known? The common myth is that it's too simplistic and it's a bit Pollyanna-ish and we're all okay, ha, ha, ha. (laughs) Um, So I think the myth is that it doesn't have gravitas and and psychological depth. Right. Possibly. Yeah. There is actually another reason that I've come across occasionally is that I think some people have kind of almost done to or done at my TA and it's often a person who's read a bit of TA and now they have a workshop and they teach people TA in a way that is quite judgmental and labeling. There was one person who asked me to do a piece of work in his company and his wife got really anxious about him using TA because they'd been on a couple's weekend and she'd been told that she was always a critical parent. And she went, whoa. That's almost, I think, because it's so inspiring, some people use it 
in a manner that makes people feel categorized and judged. And I think anything that separates and categorizes people makes people feel defensive. And so I think that's maybe people have met it in that way and have kind of said, whoa, don't want anything to do with that. Um, mm, yeah, that yeah. was one experience that I did come across. That, That's the downside, I suppose, of it being so accessible and easy to understand is that if anybody reads a book or a few books on TA, they might think that they are now a, an expert and can teach it. So, yeah, I can see how that, that could come about. Mm. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the kind of current projects, the work that you're doing in South Africa, maybe some of the stuff that you're doing on the ground that you said community? Mm, a project that I was working with before lockdown, so it's all on hold now, was with a foundation that is housing orphaned children in one of the informal settlements very close to where I live. Yeah. The children were, it's, it's a wonderful project that's enabling children to get into schools that they wouldn't have been able to afford. They're getting really good learning opportunities, but the support system, particularly with the house mothers, they were older women who hadn't had any educational opportunity, a passion for children, but living as house mothers, still having their own families and really having very little understanding of the dynamics, particularly as these children are getting to be teenagers now. So been doing some TA, offered um, TA 101 to some of the trustees to get a sense of how to work with dynamics, particularly across the, this is all the apartheid legacy of the oppressed and the oppressors and how yeah. do we work together. And then a two-hour workshop with the, we would call them um, the mamas, these amazing women with such big hearts looking after children to give them some TA frameworks about how they could think of themselves a lot of it is about almost self-care for them, feeling so stressed. Yeah. Um, the last workshop we did with them was on strokes and stroke theory and stroke myths. And how could they actually affirm themselves in the midst of such trying situations, yeah. um, such challenges, not being given much appreciation from the, the outside world, sometimes feeling taken for granted and working under very difficult conditions. Um, wow. That could be one sort of a, a group that I've worked with recently. Sounds like important work. Hmm. And rewarding as well. It is rewarding. And it's also the sense of just being with the woman in a respectful way that gives opportunity to reframe the whole thing of power um, yeah. as it's been perceived in our, in our history. Yeah. It ties in well with what you were talking about, the sense of being with people and the non-duality. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how you see this term non-duality. It's one that's been used Mm. a lot. I see it thrown around a lot in contemplative education and practices. How do you see that and how does it fit in with TA? Yeah, it's an interesting term, Um, you know, coming from appreciative inquiry where you want to inquire about what is and what works well. Anything with a non is like, Mm. well, you're still talking about duality, so what other word can you use? But I think it's a way of experiencing life and thinking that's maybe still finding its language. And if one spoke about unit of consciousness, people might go, huh? So almost non-duality, almost starting to describe what you don't want to be. 
and that whole sense of duality, you know, it, there's me and there's you. Um, I got quite inspired reading one of Keith Tudor's articles recently where he speaks about okayness. And even the I'm okay, you're okay, there's a duality in okay or not okay. Yeah. And that I am, you are, maybe indicates that sense of dropping down into a common reality, which takes away me defining me because I'm different to you. So it's holding difference, but dropping down into there is a oneness, if you like. There is a oneness that we all emerge from. I mean, people would call it different things, a sort of ground of our being, that divine presence, whatever one wants to call it. I think it resonates with the TA philosophy of okayness, but maybe more in the I am, you are. Um, I think it also leads into that beautiful dance between autonomy and homonymy. I know Byrne in the 60s, it was all about autonomy and finding one's own place, but explicitly in TA writings over the last good few years, the sense of homonymy, the collective is equally as important. Yeah. Um, And especially recently, having gone through this lockdown period, it seems that community and togetherness seems to be coming to the collective consciousness. We were speaking to Anna Chandy and she was saying there's been a revival of the recognition in India about the collective. And I think for us here in the West, I know in England, we've lost a lot of that sense of community. There's a really strong sense of individualism that I think it's maybe just turning at the moment, maybe just starting to become a great sense of awareness. It was interesting, our phrase of Ubuntu in in Africa, um, I am because you are. Um, When I was doing my case study work many years ago, it was in a township school in containers with the teachers over a few months. And we were doing the model of I'm okay, you're okay, and how's it like with those attitudes. And they really couldn't get I'm okay, you're not okay. They just didn't understand it. Since, that doesn't happen. You know, if I've only got one pot of rice for two days, but you've got no food, I can't see, I can't perceive of you as not okay. I've got to, there's that such sharing. And if you're not okay, I'm not okay. So I can't be okay when you're not okay. I know it's taking it slightly into the individual sense of how people think about themselves. But that was the initial way into that model. Like, it doesn't exist. I'm okay. You're not okay. Because we're all one. Yeah. That's really interesting. There's a real connection, isn't there, between homonymy and community and indigenous people. I think we have an awful lot to learn that we've lost from that because even in, in the sense of like if one person is sick in the town, everybody is sick. Whereas we've lost that now, you know, in, in Ireland, it's like Matt was saying, similar to England, it's become very individualistic. Um, mm. And everybody kind of out for themselves. It's just sad. Absolutely. I find it, I find it very sad. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It must be really enjoyable working because you work internationally as well. So working with cultures from all over the world and you have been doing that for a while. Does that make a difference, you feel, when you've got people from all over all coming together? Does that have a, an impact on the dynamic of the groups that you work with? I think it does very beneficially. I can remember, for example, 
one thing that stands out for me is in a coach training, there was an older Dutch reform minister. So that's in South African context, an Afrikaans minister from, yeah. from the kind of what was the institutionalized church during apartheid. Yeah. And a young Indian man, he, him and his wife had just had a little baby. They happened to be on the same coach training together and were paired up to do intermodule coaching. And this Dwomini said to me, this has been the most profound learning and transformational moment in my life, working with this young Indian man, even more than all my theological training over the years at college, all my work. It's that sort of little nugget of a moment that goes, look what's enabled by working across cultures virtually. Mm. Such difference, you know, in age, in background, in language. English wasn't even the Germany's first language, so he spoke it with quite a strong Afrikaans accent and a young man in India. And they just found this deep, I think that was a non-dual moment. They found mm. that common humanity with each other in their learning process. Brilliant. And that is one of the great things about this, us having been ushered into this new area of Zoom global connections. Mm. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh, mention or share that you thought was important to the audience before we finish? I think it's a balance between the wonderful frameworks we've got in TA, but it's the journey, not the destination. It's not the frameworks. It's the beingness of who we are. And so there's something about the, the process of the TA learning journey, I think, in its thoroughness that gives people that opportunity to drop down into their own deeper learning. Um, mm. That feels for me like almost more important than getting the model right. I'll probably yeah. be stoned for saying that <laughs> too many places. <laughs> I actually think that's very true. And when you said at the beginning about your TA 101 and how it was such a positive experience for you, which obviously then led to you being on this journey to becoming a teacher and a trainer now. I think similarly, I kind of did a foundation because I didn't want to be one of those people that John talked about where I knew a bit and was, you know, spouting stuff that wasn't accurate. So I thought I should really do a little bit of training or get a bit of an education, did a foundation and discovered so much about me in that mm. that I thought, mm. Mm, yeah, Absolutely. I'm hooked now. So yeah. Mm. For me, sometimes TA is a feeling um, like it just, it feels good to be around other people who are also interested in TA. Like, I mean, I think that for me is like the addiction. You know, it's like just being in a group of people who are learning TA, forget all of the models and content like Karen was saying, actually just being in that room, that for me is like, I feel like I'm alive. You know? And I Indeed. Think that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's that authenticity of engagement that we don't yeah. often find in other contexts. Yeah. That is such a gift in the TA community. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. I've shared this with my kids, actually, because they've asked me, what is it about the TA training that you really love? And I think it's being with people who are really interested in who they are and who other people are and what are the real deep-seated important matters of life. And yeah, I love Mm. that. And being really authentic and honest. You know, it's so refreshing. Like when you mentioned earlier, Karen, about a group storming, I was like... I can remember being in my first TA group where it was storming and I was like, yes, because this is real. Because every <laughs> other group or community or family I'm in, we pretend everything is cool. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, we're trained so often to the face, the mask, to look good when it's not the case. Wonderful. Thank you. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it. We are really grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you. As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and TA resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. If you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. And we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.